Mr. LaRue is here! Let's go! Good morning, Mr. LaRue. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Lights! Camera! Action! Oh, Miles, I... Uh, Cut! Print it! That's a wrap! LaRue! LaRue, come here. Hello, Edith. Welcome to the set. Oh, nice, <laughs> nice of you to have me. What the hell are you calling a wrap? Creative juices just aren't flowing today. <laughs> Blowing up Lake Athabasca if you don't get on with it. Get off my path quickly or I'll flatten you. I got a casting session. Let's go! Wait a minute. Johnny LaRoe. Genius. Temperamental, but genius. Hey, you, take your clothes off. Who, me? No, not you. Why not? Roll it, George. Why not? You know, you can go down there and uh, to Dealey Plaza where Kennedy was assassinated, and you can actually go to the sixth floor of the school book depository. It's a museum called the Assassination Museum. I think name that after the assassination. I can't be too sure of the chronology here, but... Anyway, they have the window set up to look exactly like it did on that day. And it's really accurate, you know? Because Oswald's not in it. Yeah, yeah, so... Wow, that's good. This is It Happened One Year, a look back at the events, big and small, famed and forgotten, from 1994. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. We're doing it again? We're bigger, bigger. Oh, I'm sorry. We're doing it again. Big, and people want energy. They want, they want <laughs> a smile in your voice and a, a laugh in your heart. <laughs> so don't don't come in here with have. your we're doing it again nonsense. Big. I, was trying some, I was trying something different. No, it was bad. It up. <laughs> what if what if our listeners are having a bad day? I want them to ease into this very uplifting episode we're about to deliver. If they're having a bad day, we are going to beat some celebrity obituaries over the over their heads. <laughs> That's the plan. Boom. We are. So not to jettison the small talk, which I know is your favorite part of the show, but I think it's worth at least setting up the idea that we've done other episodes sort of like this, but not to this extreme. So we did Dinah Shore. Yep. Which was an obituary type episode. Yep. She died in 1994. Right. We did Telly Savalas. Yes. Which you haven't, listeners have not heard yet. Or you have, but we have not released at the time of recording. I would assume they've heard it by now, but I don't know when, I I have no idea. The schedule has gotten so messed up lately that I don't know for sure. But we had a whole list of people who died in 94 and we thought this is an interesting way to talk about it. Yep. But we've never done anything to this extreme. We've mentioned briefly on the episode before that uh, we're part of this death pool, which, which I run. So this is also another just side thing I do. So I don't know how ghoulish this is, but to regular people just blasting in here and being like, Oh, Hey, what's this episode all about? Be like, Oh, this is putting a lot of happy spins on a whole bunch of people that died. Been doing this for 15 years. Yeah. This is very on brand for us actually. Yeah. I think we've actually talked about just doing a fantasy death pool podcast. I totally think we should do that. Yeah. I mean, it's a natural, but I feel like I already do too much with the death pool. <laughs> and I need a break from that. And so, of course, we're going to talk about five to seven people who died here in tonight's episode. Fantastic. Yes. Yes. Are you so excited? 
I'm so excited. I think, um, you know, one of the ways that you talk about, so when in the death pool, when somebody dies, Joe does like a little write up about them and it's, it, you know, he, he does it very tastefully. He never mentions how they died though. We're not going to abide by that rule today. And, you know, it's about what they did in their lives. Just a little, you know, a few lines about, you know, why they were notable enough to be part of a celebrity death pool. And it, you know, sort of reminds everyone about some of these people that maybe you wouldn't necessarily remember. Unless they were monsters or buffoons. Oh, yes. And then also we let some them of have my, my favorite death pool poster when Joe writes about people who were terrible in real life. Yeah, because I feel that too many people get a pass when they die. Where, like, no matter what they did in their life, if they were, even if they were seen as being bad or whatever, people get nervous about talking about terrible yeah. people after they've died, thinking that somehow, like, that has just absolved them. But, yeah. uh, you know, Joe Paterno and Herman Cain are still terrible. Oh. That's just just true both amazing posts in different ways. Cause like Joe Paterno was like a very serious, like people do things that are bad and we need to remember them. And it was like, it was moving. Like it was, a, it was a good post. And Herman Cain, Joe just like let him have it. Cause he was a freaking moron. Like he, he was so dumb. He got himself like, it is his fault that he died. Like it is no one else's fault, but his own, he went to a Trump rally was anti masking and all that got COVID and died. Of course he did. Of course he did. Uh, honestly, I feel bad that I've just lumped him in with Joe Paterno. <laughs> like, look, <laughs> very at, different, right? Joe Paterno is also was is also responsible for a lot of terrible things, yeah. but it's sort of a, a more of a negligence on Joe Paterno's part. I, look, at, I don't know how much I want to talk about Joe Paterno. That's not the point. This is taking um, a turn. But I've had a, I've like lost friendships over my opinion on Joe Paterno, and I'm still right. I just don't. Yeah. I don't care. If you went to Penn State, okay, calm down. Joe Paterno sucks. Anyway, today. We're talking about comedians <laughs> who died in 1994. That was a hard pivot. Yeah. We're not we're not talking about people who covered up uh child rape crimes. We're not talking about Republicans who gave themselves COVID and and died because of their own stupid beliefs. We're talking about people who are funny. Yeah. These we're not talking about any terrorists or former Nazis. This nope. is just straightforward people trying to be funny. Yeah. And some of them were normal people. Some of them were really sweet, nice people. And some of them were insane. And that's, yeah. I think, the spectrum of the funny people who died in 1994. Yeah, yeah. Um, here we go. I think you're up first. All right. We're doing sort of a backsy fortsy, I think is the proper term. <laughs> uh, and so we're going to vacillate, go back and forth. Vacillate? Yep. We're going to oscillate. We've, I think we've had this discussion before on the podcast. I think it's... We vacillate. had this discussion playing catchphrase the other night. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I just assume everything we talk about is on the podcast. Yes, I think it is vacillate. Mm. But either okay. way, we're going to go back and forth and we're yeah. going to talk about some people because this is we found that this is the best way for us to talk about multiple topics. We haven't recorded. Look, at, I know we're getting we keep getting sidetracked, but we haven't recorded an episode in a while. Oh, my God. And if you if you followed this show at all, I think it'd be obvious. It's the baseball episode is what really derailed this whole thing for a long time. We haven't actually yeah. recorded a new episode in almost a month now yeah. because so much time was spent putting that thing together, And I think which should before, well be out by now. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think before that, we hadn't recorded an episode in a while. Like I, we've recorded one episode in like the past six or seven weeks. Like, yeah. So I think that's, we're, there's a little rust. I think we, uh, we gotta, we gotta shake it off. See what a we can come rusty. up with. Um, I think we can classify like we will have a holiday episode that we'll put out, which is the baseball episode that Joe's referring to. But I would consider this our holiday recording episode as Joe's got our Christmas tree in the background of his recording. I've got a balsam scented candle burning in here because we don't get real Christmas trees because they're a pain in the you know what, but they smell delicious. Uh, so, you know, this is our holiday holiday recording episode. I don't know that we'll record another one before Christmas. Maybe, maybe not. So that's enough preamble. Yes, here we Let's go. Get it. Let's get That's into a the lot of small of talk. I felt really good about that. 
I, I, you know, that was a lot of small talk. Yeah, gold. The first person we're going to talk about, I believe, immediately launches us into a debate is, is this person a comedian? <laughs> because we found real comedians and people who, well, you've seen the list of people if you're, re- you're listening to this episode. Maybe you've looked at the description. Um, but we're doing them in the order in which they died in the year just because I think it's fair. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to Oscar in memoriam segment, you know, try to popularity wise this out. That's not really fair. Yep. But the first person we're going to talk about died on January 1st, 1994. New Year's and that Day is uh, famed Joker actor Cesar Romero, who is not a comedian. I I think that's just fair. Like he's not. He didn't do stand up. He wasn't going on talk shows and telling jokes. But he's most famous for playing the Joker, and I feel like that just qualifies him, right? Yeah, the the Joker's a comedian. I thought you know that that was why I was on board with with this fella. Yeah. Um, I also like that he died on New Year's Day, so he he like barely made the cut. Yeah, One he was earlier, almost 1993 and never would have, would have been, been on the show. Different podcast also. I don't know how we're ever going to loop around to doing 93. So he did. He just made the cut. Yeah. Um, but he literally did as little in 1994 as anyone we're going to talk about <laughs> because he died on the first day of the year. So that's it. I don't think we're going to talk about any babies who were born December 31st, 1994. No. No. But so Cesar Romero, I would say at this point, if he's remembered at all, which... I think he probably is mostly is just because of the Batman show, which I think has had some sort of life, even though there wasn't that much of it. And mostly it's kind of looked at as kind of a, you know, just a cheesy, you know, it's so goofy. It's such a goofy superhero yeah. show and superheroes have become so different than what they were in the sixties that I don't know how fondly people would just stumble on this show. Now, if you've gone through the last couple decades of superheroes becoming these big movie franchises and all this other stuff, but for the longest time, there was nothing. There was nothing, you know, of any significance. Comic books were a goofy children's medium. Yeah. And the Batman TV show falls right into that. And I don't even think there are sections of the old Batman TV show that have any kind of gravity to them. Like, it's very much a, a just doofy children's show. Yeah. And, I mean, and I think the epitome of that is Cesar Romero's Joker, where... You know, he, I don't even know if he did, you could say he didn't take it seriously, but he clearly wasn't going to be tied down by this show to such a degree that he wouldn't shave off his mustache. And so his Joker just has paint over his mustache, but it's so obviously there that it doesn't fool anybody. Like, it's such a strange, but like, he's just going to be like, no, I'm not shaving off my mustache to do this show. Screw you. And that's his legacy is that for the last 55 years is the Cesar Romero Joker with his weird you know, covered up mustache. Can I posit a theory that is almost certainly wrong? All right. Which is like in all the Joker movies, there's the scars and the mouth is deformed. Is there any part of that that's attributed to the fact that his mouth looked weird because he had a mustache? (laughs) You know, I actually like that theory better than like, we got to give the Joker all of this like backstory and like darkness (laughs) that it's just like Cesar Romero kicked this off and they're like, what can we do to match that? And they were like, I got it. Scars. (laughs) Exactly. Could exactly. be. I mean, it's weird because like there's nothing really else like that on the old Batman show that I, that immediately comes to mind. Like there's no yeah. there was no backstory. Like it's just launching in and goofy, you know, nonsense yeah. and bam and pow and all of that. And I think his his Joker's right there. But also, like, I think it's fair to say, like, Cesar Romero was enough of an actor to bring to that part a really distinct Joker that no one else has even really done. Like yeah. the closest I would say is is the Mark Hamill cartoon Joker that's so over the top. Yeah, that that's actually energy wise is very similar to what Cesar Romero did. And again, Cesar Romero wasn't a comedian like he's so, so his roles over the years were very much like 
Latin lover type roles and just kind of like he played a lot of ethnic characters. He was Cuban Spanish in his background, but he was an American. He was he was born in New York, but you know, that was his makeup. So he has this very distinct, you know, he played Zorro. He played the Cisco kid in a bunch of Westerns. Like that's his, his look. And, and then all of a sudden in the sixties for two years, for 20 episodes, he plays the Joker. And then he's just defined as that for the rest of his life. A guy who has 200 credits and things. I wonder if that drove him insane. So he was simultaneously the most and the least committed actor to that show of all time. Right. Right. Like, I think you can make that case. There's a lot of good actors from the original Batman TV show, but I don't know that anybody is going for it the way Cesar Romero does. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like you could make a case like all of the, the Catwomen actresses were pretty good, but they, you yeah. know, they kept swapping them out. So even the show didn't have that much faith in them. Yep. And then like Burgess Meredith's Penguin is is wacky, but I don't know that he's like over the top. Like you could play yeah. the Penguin real big and he just kind of does that like rah, 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 little deal and that's it. <laughs> Um, but Cesar Romero is way over the top the whole time. Like, I think he really understood that show in a fundamental way that a lot of the like heavy actors they brought in for that show probably didn't. Yeah. And this is just the defining thing for him. But I just wanted to point out some of the other stuff he did because Cesar Romero did have a very long career. <laughs> like he was in the business for 30 years before he was the Joker. And then he lived till 1994 and he acted basically to the end. And I don't know what else he would really be known for. Like he, he popped up in a lot of stuff. But I don't know that he had a distinct thing that other that anybody would be like, what's the second thing you'd mention if it's not the yeah. Batman show? Like he was in a couple Shirley Temple movies in the late 30s, like playing like Arabs and, and very exotic characters that she like kind of, you know, just interacts with mm -hmm. in um, The Little Princess and Wee Willie Winky, like these these random little yeah. characters. Um, again, he's in the Cisco Kid Westerns, which I don't think have a second life here uh, 90 years later. He's in the Thin Man, the original Thin Man movie with okay. William Powell. So like that's the most probably the most famous movie he has any significant role in. He's also in like Around the World in 80 Days that won Best Picture, but that movie is 3 hours long and has a cast of hundreds and I think he's in it for a minute. Yeah. Um, he's in the Frank Sinatra Ocean's 11. He has a little, you know, significant-ish part. And he's in an okay Carol Lombard movie called uh, Love Before Breakfast, um, which isn't my favorite Carol Lombard movie by any stretch. That's the one on the poster where she has the black eye. And I always point this out as being just like, this is how shitty romantic comedies were in the 30s, <laughs> where we're going to beat up the leading lady and put her on the poster that way. Like, just gross. <laughs> um, he does appear in two different Groucho Marx movies, which I think is interesting. Uh, right. Not Marx Brothers movies, but he was in Skidoo. The one where Groucho Marx plays a gangster character named God. And he was also in The Story of Mankind, which is another big cast nonsense movie that all the Marx Brothers do appear in in 1957. So, so there's that. I mean, otherwise, like he did a lot of TV, a lot of random stuff. He's in the entire series of the Kurt Russell Disney movies where Kurt Russell was playing Dexter Riley when he was like a, he's like a kid. He's like a kid at this college who just messes around. And those movies all have great titles. The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes. The uh, oh, now I've you see him, movie. now you don't, and the strongest man in the world. And he plays sort of Dexter's, I don't know. I don't even know if you'd say he's his nemesis. He's just this like criminal who who's just there messing around. But um, when I did the episode of Reconsideration for their like 100th episode, yeah. they did this retrospective of Kurt Russell. And I had just watched the Computer War Tennis Shoes like right before that. So this is yet another podcast I'm mentioning the Computer War Tennis Shoes. <laughs> oh, that's that's maybe why I remember that title yeah is, you might have seen that, i watched it you might have seen a piece but of you didn't list that as your favorite one right your favorite one was the was the fox and the hound wasn't it 
I think I said that I thought The Fox and the Hound was Kurt Russell's best movie. Oh, got it. At, at least, just, again, I I think it's, you know, I said my favorite Kurt Russell movie is probably Tombstone. I think that's still mm. true. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's certainly not The Computer War Tennis Shoes, even though that's a delightful film. That's a very <laughs> fun Disney, live-action Disney movie from the late 60s. So, um, But there you are, Cesar Romero. I, I think uh, maybe he fits with this tone, with this story maybe he fits with what we're doing here but maybe not it's hard to say i mean again you know his joker is funny i guess but it's not a comedic role so it's hard to say i there was a you know when i envisioned us including him it was i didn't think about this when we stacked them chronologically which i think makes sense but the pivot is now we've talked about comedians let's talk about someone who used comedy as a crime in a part or I don't know something because he was the Joker right like yeah, yeah. And, and you could kind of pivot from that but because we led with him now we're going to get into a- actual comedians which right. was the original concept of the episode I would and I would say the next person is the only real pure comedian on this list too as this this person didn't live long enough to do much else but was a pure stand-up comedian and is regarded so. yeah yeah the next comedian that we're going to talk about is Bill Hicks, who died on February 26th, 1994. Um, so still not doing a ton in 1994, uh, more than Cesar Romero, though. So he is, like, to your point, regarded as one of the best stand-up comedians of all time. He's I tried to, like, list all of the lists that he's on, but there's so many of them. And he's usually in the top 20, if not you know, top 10 uh, best stand-up comedians of all time, depending on who's making the list and when they're making it. So Bill Hicks spent most of his career doing stand-up, was really, like, focused on, I would say, more progressive comedy. So he talked a lot about politics. He talked a lot about religion. He talked a lot about philosophy, and people would regard him. And in some articles I read, he they actually called him a philosopher, like, very much like, I've got a, a worldview that I want to share with you through comedy, which is really interesting uh, but like brilliant brilliant stand-up comedian which i also think is interesting if you were to look at these lists of comedians he's almost certainly the least recognizable right oh yeah because again he didn't have a physical presence in anything that you would recognize unless you sought out stand-up comedy from the late 80s and early 90s totally he was on all the things that made comedy accessible but he died in 1994 and he was active up until he died but he in the late 80s and 90s you would see like hbo specials he had some of those he was on some like um i think he was on a rodney dangerfield special like he was on some of those tv specials mostly he toured and he filled big venues so he was popular like it's not like he wasn't popular it's not like he was just an underground comedian and then he died but certainly the least recognizable and some of the regard for his work actually came out or emerged after he died. Sure. And so his popularity, I think, has grown over time. He was weirdly connected to the the rock band Tool. Oh. So he, like, opened for them at Lollapalooza in 1993 and, and on the Lollapalooza tour. And Tool, like, dedicated one of their albums to him. He's, like, sampled in one in their song called um, An- Anemia. But anyway, like, they were big. They thought they really had some sort of, like, similar messaging going, even though they were working through different mediums. So he really, like, Tool really identified with Bill Hicks. See, but I think the thing is, like, he strikes me as somebody almost like a Mitch Hedberg, not in the style of comedy, but that you have to know stand-up comedy to know who he is, just because he wasn't an actor. Like, he didn't do anything. He didn't... Did he appear in anything as an actor? Not really, no. I don't think that was his career. Like, I don't think that's the kind of stuff he was doing, so... I mean, and and that's fine. Like, there's stand-ups who just do that. 
Yeah. But like, no. I didn't know who Bill Hicks was until years yeah. after he died. I mean, he was on talk shows. He was on like Letterman a bunch of times. He apparently famously used to love to make fun of Jay Leno. So I don't think he was on <laughs> Leno that often. But like he was on talk shows and and like he would show up on TV. But no, like he would he really wasn't. I don't I didn't get the sense that he was a big name and a big popular comedian. Like he certainly had following, but he wasn't recognizable like some of the other comedians of that era. Right. He famously had a plagiarism issue with Dennis Leary. And so yeah. there was this whole thing where he like heard one of Dennis Leary's albums and heard like verbatim lines and things. But he there were also there's some like comedy analysts who say Leary actually pulled parts of his persona from Bill Hicks. And if Bill Hicks hadn't died, like because he died, Leary actually pulled not because he died, but Leary got to like benefit from some of that because there wasn't a Bill Hicks around still doing comedy. Right. And like that they are very similar in style. Yeah, it was like the attitude, the attitude yeah. that Dennis Leary put on it was yeah. always attributed to Bill Hicks. Yeah. 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 So he really said he was a couple like interesting things I found about him. He he really was influenced by um, Richard Pryor and Woody Allen. They were like the two notable comedians. And there were a ton of comedians who say they were influenced by Bill Hicks. Mostly people that you know of, like I'm not going to list all of them, but one of them, of course, being Joe Rogan. Gross. Um, we'll talk more about that in a second. Great. But um, he also like he had a drug problem for a while, but that didn't have anything to do with his death. Um, he was a, like a chain smoker and he would talk a lot about that in his comedy. He had this kind of like angry white man plus evaluating, you know, and talking about the purpose of life kind of yeah. thing. Um, he always he always together. kind of reminded me of like Lenny Bruce before Lenny Bruce was broken yeah. by the world. Like yeah. when Lenny Bruce was still a comedian and not just talking about his trials. Like that's mm -hmm. what Bill Hicks kind of reminded me of. Like yeah. the yeah. little bit, you know, that I've like I've heard some of Bill Hicks albums, but like it, it's hard parsing out Lenny Bruce's career because it was so strange. But yeah, early Lenny Bruce is what that kind of reminded and, me. And there were some there were comparisons drawn between the two of them, certainly by yeah. by people around. He did have one music album. Oh. With a band. I think the band's name is Marblehead Johnson. And I, you can't find it on Spotify, but I did find a few songs on YouTube. It's not oh. bad, actually. Like, go go check it out. I didn't listen to the whole thing, but it's, uh, it's pretty entertaining. So he did this. What I thought was interesting is he did this set on Letterman. It was, it was his last appearance on Letterman. He, I guess he was on Letterman a bunch of times on both of Letterman's shows. He did about four months before he died, but no one really knew he like he would joke that every show could be his last show, but no one knew that he was actually sick. So four months before he died, he went on Letterman. He did this the set where he talked a bit about religion and the anti-abortion movement. Um, and it was cut in its its entirety. Mm. At the time, the producer of the show initially denied it, but then said, like, yeah, I made that decision. Um, and then he died four months later. Oh. And so in 2009, Letterman actually re-aired the whole segment, like not censored as it was originally taped with his mom in the audience. So this was, <laughs> you know, 15 years after he died. Um, and Letterman actually said, like, he kind of took accountability for it saying like cut he didn't say like that that bill hicks hadn't said anything wrong there and that it was you know more about him than it was about anything else but his own like flirtation with censorship he had a couple other things where pieces of his of his bits would get cut in uh, on tv and and things like that so i also just wanted to, <laughs> to like describe a couple of his like more famous 
bits just to give a sense for his comedy and and what kinds of things he talked about um there was this bit on one of his specials where he was being heckled i think someone kept yelling free bird and he decided to be critical of the audience member by saying that um, Hitler had the right idea, but he was just an underachiever and then talk for a bit about the benefit of non-discriminatory genocide. Like just, <laughs> we should kill people in general. Sure. Um, he used to talk a lot about conspiracy theories, he talked about JFK and like was very critical of the official story there. Um, and he would sometimes end his shows with a mock assassination of himself. He would pretend <laughs> like he was getting assassinated. Sure. Um, he, uh, yeah, so he, he died in 1994 of pancreatic cancer. He he moved back home with his parents in January of that year. He died in February. He reread all of Lord of the Rings in that month and a half between when he moved there and when he died. Um, going out on top. He had like a, a pilot of a TV show that he had filmed and like he had, it had been written in the pilot was filmed um, when he died that I don't think ever went anywhere. And there are a bunch of movies in the works about his life that, but I don't think like there've been a couple documentaries, but nothing major has ever been made. There's been some big names attached to stuff about him, but nothing has actually happened. So uh, in all of what you're finding, would you then say that Bill Hicks is dead? I would. Yes. I would say that Bill Hicks is dead. Cause Although, there are a lot of rumors that he is not dead. <laughs> There are there is a conspiracy theory out there that instead of dying, he was actually recruited by the CIA to become controlled opposition to the mainstream media um, and that he is now Alex Jones. There's a 33 minute video that goes through all of the evidence of why Bill Hicks is Alex Jones. And I'm going to lay the evidence out for you and you can decide for yourself. But one, they kind of look alike. Kind of. They do kind of look like two. They have similar teeth. Okay. That's basically where it ends. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's, I just think it's a great, it's a great conspiracy theory in that people keep accusing Alex Jones of being Bill Hicks, which I think is just the most fun yeah. thing. Bill Hicks would have been like in his mid to late. I think he would have been 53 or 54 this year. Mm-hmm. And Alex Jones claims to be in his 40s. And they're like, <laughs> you can fake birth certificates. You can <laughs> fake IDs. So oh, that doesn't matter. But yeah, they're nowhere near each other in age. The, other, the only other thing is that they both had like they could both speak passionately. Sure. I, I just um, I like the idea, but it there's never, you know, it's like Andy Kaufman. Like there's never yeah. really been anything to point to and be like, yeah, Andy Kaufman's still alive. Yeah. I just kind of like it. I like that people want to believe yeah. that. But, and think, that there is some basis of who they are. Like yeah. like how people think that Katy Perry is John Benet Ramsey. I just think that's fun. Like, I don't know. It's it's <laughs> grim, but it's fun, you know? Oh, that's so sad. No, I mean, there is something too. Like Bill Hicks had a like distinctly anti-government thing, but in a completely different way than Alex Jones does. Right. Like it's not the same. Like there was a, a documentary about Bill Hicks where people would talk about and his contemporaries would talk about like who he would be today. And like, who knows? I mean, but most people are like, he would be a leftist. <laughs> right. Well, but that's part of the whole thing is that not the idea that he turned into Alex Jones and this is legit Bill Hicks, but that this is all a performance, that Alex Jones Mm -hmm. isn't a real person. This is a character and this extreme character that Bill Hicks has created. Well, I think that's true. It's just not played by Bill Hicks. It's played by Alex Jones. This is Alex Jones' extreme version of himself. Yeah, exactly. That's fair. And how does Joe Rogan tie into this? 
Oh, Joe Rogan claims Bill Hicks as one of his um his like inspirations. Oh, like he and yet he's turned into his... Joe Rogan somehow. Yeah, exactly. Right. Nice. So everyone else is just a straight up comedian. And Joe Rogan is like, Bill Hicks, man, he really like led me to be who I am today. Yeah. And who you are today is a piece of human garbage. That actually makes a lot of sense, though, if that's true, because, again, we've already established Bill Hicks was tight with the band Tool. And there's no bigger tool than Joe Rogan. <laughs> Sums that right up. <laughs> Very well played. Thank well you. played. Thank you. John Candy is James T. Harlow, weather master. We leave at dawn. Noonish. He's got courage. He's got drive. There's only one thing he needs. Direction. You're going the wrong way. John Candy. Maybe you'd like to come to my wagon tonight and we can talk. Richard Lewis, Wagons East, rated PG-13. Starts Friday, August 26th at a theater near you. Well, so to go from Bill Hicks, uh, who I, you know, is wonderful, but again, I think is an, a very well-known person in a lot of regards in comedy circles to be sure. But I think you can go back and find old comedians who never really broke into the mainstream or have now like been gone for so long that yeah. maybe they're not super well-known, uh, mostly from the back in the day, 60s, 70s type comedians. But to transition from that, is to the most famous person of this group. And I mean, arguably one of the most famous deaths of that year. And that's the great John Candy, who died on March 4th, 1994. And there is some, even though it was a month earlier, there's some people who have said that like John Candy's death largely was just forgotten at the time because Kurt Cobain dies only like right after that, even yeah. though it's a month later. But still, like, I think it was just Cobain's death was such a big deal culturally for everybody that like mm -hmm. you know if you're at the right age at that time where yeah. you know john candy's just this you know middle-aged comedian at this yeah point. very different audiences I yeah yeah but i mean i remember when john candy died i mean i was young but still like i remember john candy dying because i don't remember a time that i didn't know who john candy was like yeah he's just so part of everything when you're in the 80s growing up or yeah. you know in the early 90s because he was in just so much stuff this was almost just a John Candy episode, so I got to try to rein it in. Yeah, to keep this from getting out of hand. I like I really planned on like when we were doing the baseball episode, like I was going to ask everybody to do five minutes on John Candy and just see what we ended up with. But I realized that was that baseball episode was becoming its own monster. <laughs> well, there's that too. Oh, but as Joe and I talked about it, I was like, that's just going to be you talking about John Candy for like an hour, right? Which it is, I mean, look, we don't make these episodes to be entertaining to other people. They're just for us. We, if you right. like them, that's great, but they're just for us. Yeah. And I was like, I don't think anybody's going to like that. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's fair. Like, I think that's, you know, that's, this is why we are both hosts of the show. We need, mm -hmm. we need a back and forth to balance each other because really I would just keep mentioning John Candy. We'd be like, oh, how good was that? Oh, you know, it was great. Oh, that movie was great. And I'll just keep doing that. You would be that Chris Farley character. Hey, do you remember the Beatles? <laughs> Right. That's what I would be. I'd be like, oh, man, remember Splash? Oh, Splash is great, you know? <laughs> um, so so very quickly, even though, again, I'm going to mention a lot of movies, it's still just Go like, you know, the set of 400 has a ton of John Candy movies. <laughs> in it. But John Candy, famously, born on Halloween, and his last name is Candy. Nothing's better than that, right? I did not know that. It's the greatest thing there is. Uh, he was born outside of Toronto. He really came up with uh, in a big way with Second City in Toronto. That was where he got his whole start. Canadian television, you know, most of his early stuff is all that. It's only later when he starts getting some little movie parts. And he gets very small movie parts for a long time. 
But this was all on the back of SCTV. And there are people who say like, oh, well, his really his star really rose, really took off in the mid 80s when he's doing like Splash or uh, his little parts and things. He just was so recognizable. But SCTV was, you know, only in Canada for a couple of years. But then it starts to fill in for Saturday Night Live. I think they weren't running reruns in the late 70s. Uh, on the off nights on Saturday Night Live. So they would run, in a lot of cases, they'd run SCTV. And so SCTV started getting this big American following. And then I believe NBC and some other network did air the the long show, the Network 90 show in the early 80s. And it's hard to say John Candy even is the standout person on that show because SCTV has so many great people on it. So many people. So it's not really like, well, he's just the star, but it's just that that group is so good and his SCTV characters are so good that... You know, he's obviously this super talented guy and he's so distinct looking like he's so he's big and he's like his characters are these big, crazy characters. Johnny LaRue is one of the great variety show characters of all time, like just an amazing presence, you know, but but on the on the back of this, he does. He's got a little part in 1941, which is a Spielberg movie, not everyone's favorite movie. I like it, but it's you know, it is this big cast, crazy World War Two comedy. He's got a little part in the Blues Brothers. He did a lot of stuff with Dan Aykroyd because they were both from Toronto, essentially, and Aykroyd came from Second City, Toronto. But Aykroyd was so associated with Saturday Night Live, he doesn't usually get lumped in with the SCTV people. But he did a lot of stuff with Aykroyd. They were both on a children's show that aired in Canada in the mid-70s that Aykroyd filmed while he was doing Saturday Night Live. Yes. I don't know why. Like, I don't know what the logic was there, but... It was called Coming Up Rosie, and it was just like a children's show, and Catherine O'Hara was on it, and so... That's this, amazing. It has this great cast, and I have no idea what it is. It's just this CBC show. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe you can find it on YouTube. I don't even know. Like, it's hard to find old CBC stuff. I love yeah. that so much. Finding the old short episodes of SCTV is really hard. Like, they do exist because they used to air them on TV, but mostly, like, everything that's come out since were the Network 90 stuff, which is the NBC show. So, yeah. which uh, redid a lot of the old sketches, but it's still not the original show in the same yeah. way. But you no, know, so then quickly after that, like he has that he's in stripes. He has a real role in stripes. He's in vacation. He has that part at Wally World at the end. He's got a cameo in Little Shop of Horrors. He did a lot of those kind of fun jump in characters where even though he's an already an established person, he does these little, you know, parts. He at Home Alone, he's not credited at the beginning of Home Alone. And so when he turns That's up, you're crazy. like, Oh my god, like John Candy's in this movie. Like it's just, you know, well into the movie, but it's still a lot of fun. So we um, quote that all we quote him in that movie all the time. I don't even know why. Like, yeah. where do we work that in a conversation? But we quote that all the time. It does weirdly come up a lot. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But like I, a lot of times I'll forget he's even in it because like it's again, it's so far into the movie and it has nothing to do with the Chicago part of the movie that yeah. I always kind of forget that it's there. But yeah, just great. Just him and Catherine O'Hara riffing. It's really it's fun. It's because they meet in Scranton, don't they? Isn't yeah. That- yeah. Because yeah. then they I believe they drive from Scranton to Chicago is the yeah. is the is the bit. So uh, yeah, but he has a little, a, a random little part in JFK, which like a serious part. He's in Follow That Bird, like the, the oh, Sesame Street movie. That bird. But yeah, he just pops up like, you know. So, I mean, again, like I could just keep naming stuff like everybody knows John Candy. Like, what's your favorite John Candy? You, it's probably Cool Runnings, right? Oh, yes. I do love him in Cool Runnings. Yeah. But the thing that as a kid, 
we used to watch Spaceballs all the time. My dad never watched movies and we used to watch Spaceballs constantly. He just thought it was hilarious. Even though I had never seen Star Wars. I didn't know, (laughs) like I didn't get any of the jokes, but like I probably think of him first as, oh gosh, what is it? Ralph. It's not Ralph. Arf. Right. That's right. Probably think of him first as Arf because that's what I first remember him as. It's Barf. Barf. Sorry. Yes. Barf. Yes. That's right. Yes. He's a mog. (laughs) Half man, half dog. He's his own best friend. <laughs> so great. Yeah. Uh, but honestly, we watched Planes, Trains, and Automobiles over Thanksgiving. Yeah. And like John Candy is freaking acting in that oh. movie. Like that is a devastating character. That heartbreaking. He plays. That like, is a heartbreaking. heartbreaking. Ending. Yeah. I didn't, I hadn't seen that movie in a long time. I didn't really remember, but he was like, I, I was touched by yeah. John Candy in that movie. Even though he's a great comedian, like he can yeah. act. Yeah. No, his parts in that, like that movie is a really funny movie. And as a kid, I remember like it being really funny. Yeah. But now it's like that scene where Steve Martin yells at him and then just yeah. how devastated he is. You want to hurt me? Go right ahead if it makes you feel any better. I'm an easy target. Yeah, you're right. I talk too much. I also listen too much. I could be a cold-hearted cynic like you. But I don't like to hurt people's feelings. Well, you think what you want about me. I'm not changing. I like, I like me. My wife likes me. My customers like me. Because I'm the real article. What you see is what you get. God. And then the end. And the end is just, oh, oh my God. It's such, oh. a, it's such a tear-jerking movie that it's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Ridiculous. And then, like, as we get older, like, the more it's like that. Like, it's yeah. still funny, but it's is it's actually becoming a hard movie to watch. Yes, yeah. yes, completely agree, completely agree. Yeah. But I think probably the the thing I remember most of of his acting is his part in Home Alone. Like, we talk yeah. about it so much. We watch Home Alone probably. I mean, we watch it once a year around Christmas time, like everyone does. Yeah. And like, that's probably the role that I go to for him. That's fair. I mean, again, I, I think there's a lot of movies of his I watched a lot as a kid. I saw The Great Outdoors a lot of times with him mm. and Dan Aykroyd. We watched that a lot. We watched we watched Spaceballs. We watched Splash a lot, even though I haven't seen Splash now. And oh I don't God. even know how long I don't I, I don't know if that movie holds up. But like he was so great in Splash that even like the nonsense Daryl Hannah stuff, which is most of the movie. Yeah. Uh, maybe not aging too well, but John Candy was great in that movie. Yeah. And then like Armed and Dangerous with him and Eugene Levy. Uh, Delirious. I always love Delirious, even though I think it's kind of just a forgotten nothing movie, but it's such a crazy concept where he's the soap opera writer and he just writes him like he goes into some sort of fantasy world where he can just write himself into the show and do all this stuff. So when I was a kid, Susie used to watch this movie called Hot to Trot a lot, which is like a a horse racing comedy, sort of. (laughs) And Bobcat Goldthwait is the main guy. Yes. And John Candy is the voice of the horse. Amazing. (laughs) And he can talk to him. And I, 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 so I don't remember that movie much at all, but like John Candy's voice is that horse to me in a lot of ways. Like (laughs) I hear hit and I'm like, oh yeah, that's that horse from Hot to Trot. Uh... But yeah, did just, considering again, he only lived to be about what, 44 yeah. The amount of stuff he did in that time in the 80s, just he was in so much stuff and so many yeah. just great parts, like really, really something. And there's a lot of interesting near miss stuff with him. Like we were talking about this the other day when we went and saw the new Ghostbusters movie, which is perfectly fine. Yep. But he was supposed to be in the original Ghostbusters. He was supposed to play Lewis Tully, the, the part that Rick Moranis ends up playing. 
and I think it was a scheduling thing. He couldn't, he couldn't sort out. I think it was the end of SCTV was around. That's when they would have been filming like 83 and he couldn't get that lined up. And Moranis had already left SCTV. So that's how he was able to do that. Uh, yeah, that makes um, sense. But there was that. There's a story that he was the most bumped host on Saturday Night Live, that he was booked <laughs> to host a bunch of times and they kept bumping him for somebody else. And so he only hosted once, I oh. think also in 1983. Oh, you that know, sucks. Just the way it worked out. Like there's the book of Confederacy of Dunces, which is kind of a famous now book. Yep. Uh, there've always been talk of making that into a movie and in the early nineties, that was something he was connected to along with a fatty Arbuckle movie, which everybody's tried to make. Oh, yeah. And so there's stories that those projects are cursed because Farley, was also associated with both of those movies for a oh, long time. Wow. John Belushi was associated with both of those same Ugh. projects and these people all die very young. Yeah. Um, that they're, you know, so, so that to this day, there still isn't a significant fatty Arbuckle biography movie and they've never made Confederacy of Dunces into a wow. movie of any, of any note. So Confederacy of Dunces, I remember being great when I read it, uh, years ago now, but I remember it also being really complicated. Like it's, it's a funny book, but I don't yeah. know that it would pick up and translate into a movie super well. Yeah. So part of it could just be the, you know, the time it's taking to write scripts is, you know, that's dragged that out, but yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was, that was that he died of heart disease. I mean, he was, again, he was a big guy and, you know, there's stories that he was kind of, you know, moody, not, not, not a mean guy, but he would get depressed and this and that, yeah. and he just didn't take care of himself real well. So, um, and his father had died at the age of 35. So <gasps> there was some heart, heart issues in the, oh, in the genes. So that's crazy. Yeah. So, you know, it is a shame, but, uh, oh. But I mean, I, nobody, nobody doesn't like John Candy. Like there's, yeah. I think one of the more beloved people ever, you never hear anybody say anything bad about the guy. Like, yeah, just seemed like a really nice guy and, and it was really funny. So yeah, there's still talk of them changing the, the name of the like Canadian acting awards to the candies because I, like, that's still something that comes around. So yeah. sooner or later they might do that. I think that'd yeah. be fun. I hope they do. I mean, the thing is all of his characters were likable too. Like I, I can't think of a movie in which he played someone who wasn't like likable i mean his his whole demeanor his whole style of comedy his whole approach to like it's so it's so like i can't think of a yeah. better word for it it's so likable that like i can't think of a a character that he would have played that wasn't that you know there's not really many i mean he played characters who are a little edgy uncle buck yeah. is a little edgy but he's yeah. not an unlikable character no they you all know? have this like earnest like desire to be loved kind yeah. of component to them yeah, that yeah. i think you know he did so well yeah. And he's just he kind of hyper and kind of, yeah. you know, like, like stripes and stripes. He's very, you know, up, yeah. you know, and, and I think he yeah. did a lot of he he did that part really well. Yeah. yeah but also yeah. he played like he didn't play a lot of sleazy characters in movies. Yeah. But on SCTV, his sleazy characters are incredible. <laughs> like, again, Johnny LaRue is incredible. Yeah. And um, Tommy Shanks, the mayor of Mellonville, is an amazing like they're just amazing characters. <laughs> but but SCTV, like everybody is so good on that show that it's it's hard to pick and choose. But man. Yeah. Like it's all, like they always say about Tina Fey that like Tina Fey never plays these characters, but her old improv characters when she would just play scumbags were hilarious. <laughs> but she just doesn't do it after a point, and then she never really yeah. got sketches on on Saturday Night Live. So, but yeah, that was uh, that was John Candy. And then to quick transition because I again I don't want to eat up too much time. Yeah. But the other person I was going to mention quick was uh, another Saturday Night Live person was Denitra Vance who died in 1994, and she was only on Saturday Night Live for a year. So I don't even know that she's really that memorable. She's on. She's not on a good season. She's on season 11, um, which was 85 to 86. 
And she's significant because she was the first black woman on the show, but they didn't give her a lot to do because that season was also like, you know, there's there wasn't a lot of diversity on the show at that point. Yeah. And that's always that's always thought of because it was the weird Robert Downey Jr. Anthony Michael Hall year where there's all these strange people who popped up for that one year. Yeah. And she was part of that group and she really just did not get a lot to do on that show. But but she was regarded like she was a, another Second City person. She was from here in Chicago. She, yep. she was uh, born on the South Side. She went to Thornton down in Harvey. So she was around. Um, she went to Roosevelt University right downtown. Yep. But she really didn't get a, much of a fair break on Saturday Night Live. And she was gone after that one year. The group that got canceled that year that left the show were Robert Downey Jr., Joan Cusack, Randy Quaid. So th those are all Oscar nominees. Oh, God. <laughs> and Anthony Michael Hall and her. So just a weird set of circumstances. Yeah. But yeah. she did a lot of theater in New York. She won an Obie. Yeah. Um, so she was, you know, she was doing stuff. And she was regarded. It's just that, you know, if you didn't get into Saturday Night Live in that era as just a white guy with a ton of connections, you weren't going to do much. And yeah. you know, there were a lot of talented people in that, that era who Julia Louis-Dreyfus does nothing significant on all her years of Saturday Night Live. And you know, it's, it was hard. It was a hard time. So, yeah. 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 But it seemed like it, I read a little bit, I know she was your person to do on the show, but I read a little bit about her, her bio. And it seemed like she like really had some, she could act like to your point, she was on, like she was in theater. She won an NAACP image award. Like she was really like, yeah, it seemed like she had a lot of talent. I don't, I, I haven't, I don't think I've seen an episode of that season of Saturday Night Live, but like, it's, yeah, it's tough. It's tough to find. Like I've seen them. I, and I remember her being good. Like I remember she was effective, but it was the parts. She just didn't yeah. really have much. Yeah. And she would complain. I think that what was in interviews later, she would kind of say that like, she was just getting these like stereotypical, like young black girl characters that were just yeah. there to fill out in, in a scene. Like there was nothing much. They did, uh, one recurring thing they did was that black girl, which was supposed to be like a that girl yeah. parody, but that yeah. girl had been off the air for 15 years. So I don't know that that was anything like, yeah. So they, well, I, I don't think they, I just don't think they of, knew what to do with her. One so. of her other characters was like Cabrini green, Rebecca or something. I, I don't remember the name of the character, but like yeah. it was Cabrini green for listeners who aren't don't know is like a project in Chicago. And it was, like, yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it's not anymore. But um, and like that was one of her characters. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think some of this was stuff she had developed. Sure. She did a lot. She did improv. But yeah, it was just the fact that, like, you know, I think it was hard to, to really get in and get your stuff on the air in that era. And unless you, you know, again, we're basically if you were a white guy, it was really yeah. just not a great era for the show. So. Yeah. But that year, that was like right around that time where you also had a lot of single season people. Like that was when Billy Crystal was on for a year and Martin Short was on for a year. And they were just trying to keep the show going. Like it yeah, was, yeah. that was, show was on, on the verge of cancellation all of those years. Yeah. Until basically the late 80s when then they, they got that that super cast with Dana Carvey and Phil Hartman and those guys. Yep, yep. So, but yeah, Denise Vance, she was the third person from Saturday Night Live to die. The third cast member to die at that point so because belushi had died in the early 80s and gilda died in the late 80s so it was and, crazy but that was it but these were young you know these are young people so yeah yeah um so i remember i remember her dying even though i hadn't seen that show when i was a kid because they weren't really rerunning those seasons of saturday Night live when i was a kid so i only remember just because because i was a big saturday Night live person so like i knew you know i was reading biographies and such and so when she died i was like oh she was you know she was a cast yeah. member you know, really yeah. hadn't been many so yeah well, she may have been the third cast member to die, but she was the first of two SNL uh, employees that we're going to talk about who died in 1994. So the last uh, person that we're going to cover is Michael O'Donohue, who was SNL's first head writer. 
And he was also the first person to utter any dialogue at all on the show. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Let us begin. Repeat after me. I would like. I would like to feed your fingertips. To feed your fingertips to the Wolverines. To the Wolverines. <laughs> Michael O'Donoghue popped up in a lot of sketches in random little ways, but he wasn't yeah. a cast member. No. Yeah. Um, so he started more or less. He, I mean, he started in like indie theater and his first publication ever was at the University of Rochester's humor magazine titled, Ugh. he wrote something <laughs> in that magazine. <laughs> but, but like his big, his first really, really big thing that he did is he was the initial like founding writer and eventually an editor of the national lampoon magazine with um, Henry Beard and Doug Kenny, which was known for its kind of dark black comedy kind of style. So I just want to highlight a few of the things that he did in national lampoon and, and Joe could probably even tell you more, but uh, one of the things that he was known for was the Vietnamese baby book, which oh. was a book of, of where instead of cataloging milestones of your children, it's all of the injuries that they sustained during the Vietnam War. Yeah. yeah. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was dark. Like there was, yeah. there, you know, and, and that's, you know, that was the energy he brought to the early Saturday Night Live. So. Yes. Yes, it was. Um, he was also like he directed and acted on the National Lampoon Radio Hour. He, you know, he was very involved in, obviously very involved in writer, very prolific in the early years of the National Lampoon. You know, I don't have a lot of specifics about what he did. I just remember like that, that like the, the magazine had was underway and he was doing his cartoon for a different magazine that I don't remember the name of, but he would do this comic strip that was supposed to be kind of like Barbarella. Like it was like a, but it was a parody where it was just this girl who was always in these perilous situations and getting saved and and but her name was Phoebe Zeitgeist and that was the that was and you can still find collections of Phoebe Zeitgeist out in the world because it was such a popular thing for such a period of time and this is this essentially got him into the lap the lampoon yeah the lampoon um where then I think he met he met Ann Beats there who then they went and did Saturday Night Live yeah yeah, yeah. they went dead yeah they they both went to Saturday Night Live. So he went and he went to be the first head writer of Saturday Night Live. Famously, he said when, uh, you know, in the early years, I don't actually know how long, but Jim Henson and the Muppets had were yeah, on Saturday first Night Live. Year, yeah. And I think the sketches were called Land of Gorge. Is that from yeah, the Land of Gorge? Yeah, Land of Gorge. they were like this fantasy world where they were just these monsters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just to give you a sense of who Michael O'Donoghue was, he said uh, they asked him to write for it. And he said, I won't write for felt. <laughs> refused to write yeah. for the land of gorge yeah everybody hated the land of gorge sketches yeah, yeah. every i mean everybody on the show and everybody in the world nobody liked yeah. I, I think land of gorge is okay but it, yeah it's not it's not jim henson liked it right i'm not the person to ask about something jim henson created <laughs> go listen to our muppets episode yeah um yeah. back in the archives <laughs> um he but he like he wrote a lot of stuff that was dark and controversial like a few things he did on SNL. He did a series of what were called least loved bedtime stories. 
Um, he wrote a, a sketch called The Little Engine That Died. Um, and then he did what, and maybe you can talk about this because I didn't know anything about this, but a, a Belushi like staple, The Last Voyage of the Starship Enterprise. Oh, yeah. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. The the Star Trek parody they did is this super long sketch. And that was that was this thing. I remember the story of when they were putting this together was... You know, there wasn't Star Trek. The movies hadn't come back. So Star Trek, this is now just the TV show, which had ended years and years earlier. And so they do this sketch that is so long and it's about them basically getting canceled so that it's this meta thing where like network executives are flying behind the Enterprise and they come on and they take off Spock's ears as uh, Chevy Chase is playing Spock. And it's this super elaborate, complicated thing. But I remember like that was part of the debate was that the sketch is so long. How can we air this? Like, how how is this actually going to get on? Yeah. And uh, and they push through, and it is it is an all time classic. Belushi's <laughs> Belushi's Kirk is incredible. His Shatner is amazing. Yeah, Captain Slog, final entry. We have tried to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before, and except for one television network, we have found intelligence everywhere in the galaxy. <laughs> It's a little, it was a little unclear to me in what I was reading, how he actually left SNL the first time. Cause he came back during the like post Lauren period. But yeah. do you know anything about like how he left the first time? I was under the impression he left while the show is winding down at the end of those first couple of years. Cause yeah. everybody left after the fifth season, essentially. Yeah. Right? Belushi and Ackroyd left, I believe in the fourth season. And then I'm, I'm pretty sure he leaves during the fifth season because there's the whole thing was collapsing at that point and the network yeah. was giving Lauren all sorts of problems and they all knew this was coming to an end but yeah. he's only gone for a year like that, yeah. that terrible sixth season I think is the only year he's really not involved at that point yeah yeah he wasn't gone for very long um it near the end of his time on SNL and I'm not sure exactly where this fits he did work on an NBC TV TV special called Mr. Mike's Mondo Video oh yeah that they prepared to be a TV special, but it was so raunchy that they had to move it to be a, a cinematic movie. Like they put, had to put it in movie theaters. I've seen Mr. Mike's Mondo video and it is, it's just bonkers. Like it's a bunch of crazy sketches, but it has all these old Saturday Night Live people on yeah. it. And, yeah. um, but yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Like it's not something you could just air on TV. So like, it makes sense that that was something they couldn't put out, but yeah, but his, yeah. his character, his Mr. Mike character was on Saturday Night Live. Like he would pop up in sketches, essentially yeah. playing himself. Yeah. And I just remember the thing he would do, which I don't even know if he did it a bunch of times, but this was something he used to do in his old stage show. And then he did here was he would play, he played Mike Douglas who was plunging giant needles into his eyes. And that's just yeah. all the sketches is him just screaming. And this was like yeah. on television. Yeah. <laughs> it's just him mimicking this and just screaming. And that's all well, the sketch was like, and so it was just crazy. Like, you know, yeah, it's interesting, but they said that that was influenced by the fact that he actually had chronic migraines. Mm. And so that was, why he wrote those sketches is because yeah. his like he really suffered from migraines. Well, this is I think what points to when he actually dies. Like, yeah, he dies of a cerebral hemorrhage once yeah. he eventually dies. So something was going on there. That yeah, wasn't there's a really story working. in a there was a I read a biography. I don't know if it was of him or if it was of the National Lampoon, but like the story was that like I mean part of it was like he was such a genius comedian. They think like his brain chemistry was actually somewhat different than normal people just to be able to think in sort of the way he did. But yeah. they said that his his like hem his hemorrhage was so bad that his almost like his brain exploded. Like it was such wow. a, but yeah, such a devastating, you know, this, you know, and he wasn't an old man when he died. No, he was 54. Yeah. Um, but I think that also points to some of his erratic behavior. So yeah. Um, he, so he leaves SNL, everything falls apart. Lauren leaves. 
after Lorne left, at one point they call him back and say, like, Mayday, we need you to come back in. Day one, he walks in and he just screams at everyone in the cast. He makes people like right in magic marker on the walls. He spray paints the word danger on the on the wall of his office and says, this is what the show's lacking um, so much that they hired Catherine O'Hara. And the story is that she experienced the first day with him. And that's why she left. Yeah. So he potentially like deprived us all of the Catherine O'Hara SNL years that we yeah. could have had. But she yeah. was like, nope, nope, none of this. Yeah. No, he was a notoriously hard person to get along with. Like they, everybody says this, like he didn't exactly have friends. Everybody yeah. admired him because he was a genius, but that he was just so erratic and he, yeah. it, all the way back to the lampoon. Like they said that Doug Kenny was a genius. And like, they said, these guys just did not get along because they both were these like super alpha comedians yeah. and just could not see eye to eye on anything. And so just working at the lampoon at that point was so chaotic because you had yeah. to be in camps and all this other stuff. And and yeah. that's always the story with O'Donoghue is that he was so intense yeah. and just so mercurial that it was hard to manage as a, yeah. as a, as a person just in a day to day way. Yeah. So he doesn't in the in the non Lorne years, they they ask him back, but he doesn't do much on the show. Like he just doesn't get a lot on the air. He, he, he just doesn't do much. He does get released from the show. And they say it's because he did this sketch called The Last Day in Silverman's Bunker, which is where and he starts to make some jokes that have uh, more Nazi tendencies maybe than you would like. But he does the sketch called The Last Day in Silverman's Bunker, which is about Fred Silverman, who was uh, the president of the network at the time. Um, and and he had I don't know the stories behind exactly what was going on, but he had some troubled issues with his um, tenure. And so they compared the last days of his tenure to Hitler's final days. They put all this time and effort into building sets around this. Like they went far down the road to, to prepare the sketch, including a Nazi Eagle that instead of holding a swastika was holding the NBC peacock. <laughs> and they were like, uh, no, no Maybe more of this. this. And so yeah. that's when they released him from the show. Um, but he was hired back uh, when Lauren came back in 1985. But again, he didn't really like it, he didn't get a ton on the show at the time and was then again, ultimately released again because he told the New York Times that and uh, that Saturday Night Live was an embarrassment and that it watching it was like watching an old man die. <laughs> <laughs> so willing to go yeah. so well for him. Yeah. 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 So like he he also had like a few small parts in movies. He was in Manhattan. Yeah. He's and, in Manhattan. Yeah. Yep. Um, and he was apparently in Wall Street. He co-wrote Scrooge. So, you know, he did some good stuff. He was, I think he was, him and Bill Murray, I think, actually were sort of friends, which yeah. is a weird, a weird, I mean, again, Bill Murray's, I think, a little hard to deal with, too. But Yeah, it kind of makes sense. Um, but yeah, he doesn't have a lot of big screen credits. I know he wrote a movie in the 70s called Savages, but I don't remember, yeah. um, I don't think I ever saw it. And it's got a crazy plot, but um, yeah, yeah like he, he had a lot of, like, half projects things he was sort of working on but mostly it was like everything was too extreme and yeah. if it was for tv they wouldn't air it and if it was a movie he couldn't usually get it made yeah. so um the one thing that he did do that i thought was interesting is he wrote a song um that was performed on snl by christine ebersall who we saw in person we did um for an snl sketch uh it was called a single oh shoot i didn't write down the name of the song it's called like single single woman i think mm -hmm. is what it was called from the SNL sketch, it was picked up by Dolly Parton, who recorded it as a country song, oh. and it hit number eight on the country charts. So he oh. was credited as a as a songwriter for Dolly Parton. 
And that song then inspired an ABC TV movie called Single Bars, Single Women that starred Tony Danza and Gene Smart. (laughs) And he was a producer on the movie. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) That's a very roundabout story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad we found the Maselli connection. We did. I I needed to. I needed to. Perfect. Um, Yeah. And he died at age 54 uh, in 1994 of a cerebral hemorrhage. So there you go. uh, Hard times. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when he died, they aired a sketch. I, I want to say they might have brought Bill Murray back just to introduce it. or They brought somebody. I think it was Bill Murray to come yeah. back. They brought him back and like introduced an old sketch of his, which is something they've been doing more when, you know, yeah. when people die or whatever. And uh, and even then, like, because, again, this is 94, like 94 Saturday Night Live is, you know, is a very strange show. It's that just super guy heavy, you know, yeah. a lot of bro comedy. And then they have this crazy Michael O'Donohue sketch where I think he's like a bartender and it's like. Just, you know, again, just peppered dark jokes and all this. And it it does not fit with that episode. But you're like, oh, this is what the show was like. (laughs) Apparently, I didn't write down this whole story because I thought it would be too much to go into. But apparently he wrote a monologue that Chevy, I think, recorded. I don't don't know. I don't understand. They said it didn't air. Um, But he wrote a monologue that was for Chevy and specifically designed to humiliate him. Like the first line was something. I'm going to paraphrase because I didn't write down. Now I don't remember. But it was something like, I quit doing like heroin or cocaine or something. And then I turned into a, a, a garden slug and I don't know why. And like, that's, <laughs> and, and that was one of his contributions in his yes. last years at Saturday Night Live. I did forget how much he hated Chevy. So Chevy worked on the old Lampoon radio show. And so he knew him from before and Chevy became a much different person once he became a star. And so there's a story, Doug Kenny died in Hawaii, I want to say in like 1980 and Doug Kenny and Chevy were really good friends. Doug Kenny worked on Caddyshack and yeah. you know, he was close with these guys, but he fell off a cliff in Hawaii, I want to say, and they don't know if he killed himself or if it was, he was, he was on drugs. He was on drugs, but whether that was what killed him, Yeah. but Michael O'Donohue's quote, when he hears this story and he says, you know, the Doug died and he goes to the funeral and that, that's the story. He goes to the funeral and he says something to the effect of uh, too bad. He wasn't shaking hands with Chevy when it happened. Oh my God. Just hated the guy. So. All right. Michael well, O'Donoghue, everybody. <laughs> I, would say, I would say that covers it. What a note to end the show on. Oh, man. Uh, All right, everybody. Well, we did it. I, I mean, it's been a weird one, and we haven't uh, we haven't done one of these in a bit. So yeah, uh, I'm excited. I'm excited that we're we're checking some boxes. I, you know, we haven't said this on the show, I don't think, but like we're trying to wrap this season up. We don't have yeah. a definite plan, but we don't have many more things we absolutely have to cover or that we really really wanted to cover before we finish 1994. So um, just to throw it out there, this this season is going to end at some point. We're not yeah. uh, we're not doing 94 forever, which I think is something else we've teased from time to time. <laughs> So, uh, listeners, let us know what you think is the a good n- next year for us to do, because I think we're just going to do another year. Yeah, we've talked about it and we've got some ideas, but we haven't nailed it down. Uh, I did come up with the idea tonight that I think it would be funny to pick a famous year in history, but not talk about the famous thing. Like we do 1492 and just see what else there was. <laughs> but... We don't talk about we don't talk about Columbus. No. Uh, all right. Well, I think that about uh, does it. So we talked about a bunch of uh, a bunch of comedians, a bunch of this and that. Yep. What? How do you want to go out? What do you got? What do you got for us? I think don't sing a song. <sighs> Damn it! I think you should do. I always do the outro. I think you should do the outro. Oh boy. Um, I all I think it's the only thing fitting considering what we've talked about. Polka, polka, polka. 
it started in Scranton. It's now number one. That's the Pennsylvania polka. I know, but it's still a polka. And they did start in Scranton. Well, the Pennsylvania polka did. Yes, that was, that... as did uh, whatever his character's name was in Home Alone. and Gus, uh, Gus Polinski. Whatever Catherine O'Hara's character's name was in Home, Home Alone. Well, we've run this aground. <laughs> yes, we have. Uh... I mean, you did choose to sing a, a song for the outro that was only three words. <laughs> well, that was it. It was like saying Wango. It didn't have to be much. Oh. Oh, I then thought... it turned into like you wanted to talk about some other stuff. <laughs> what's his character's name in uh, Home Alone? What's uh, what's her name? I like remember, that you know his name and not her who, name. Who was the old man with the who lived next door? What was his character's name? Oh, you got me. Buzz, your girlfriend. Woof. <laughs> These are the things we quote. Yep. Yeah. Uh, thanks, everybody. Bye. This has been. It happened one year. You know it'd be great. Give us a rating. Give us a follow. We're everywhere. <laughs> oh, how delicious it is! The Joker outwits Batman and steals the fabulous jewel collection right out from under his nose! <laughs> oh, my playful pilfering cat!